As you know, we've been in a series in the Old Testament. The title of the series, for those of you who might remember and those of you who don't, is Ancient Stories, Contemporary Truth. The point is to take a look at some ancient stories in the Old Testament and apply them to our lives and where the contemporary truth is to identify it. Uh, we've told a number of stories along the way, but I would like to suggest that at least one of the stories that I'll tell to you this morning has got to be the most unusual of the stories you've heard so far. And as a matter of fact, there's more stories like it in the Old Testament, as unusual or more unusual. The story you heard today, read from your text, is preceded by a story that sets that one up. Here's the story that precedes it. Solomon is king, and it's near the end of his reign. As he's king, he watches one particular young man emerge, among others, as especially gifted to rule in his kingdom. He gives him a high-ranking office and tells him to do his work, and uh, he expects great things from him. That man's name was Jeroboam. Jeroboam assumes the more exalted responsibilities, and very quickly, after the assumption of those responsibilities, Jeroboam is leaving Jerusalem one day, the capital of Israel. And as he leaves Jerusalem, he's encountered by a prophet, Ahijah. The two of them walk along in the country and in a field. Ahijah says to Jeroboam, I have a word of the Lord for you. Uh, by the way, let me say this about prophets. Prophets are strange creatures. There's just no doubt about it. Particularly the prophets of the Old Testament. They do some bizarre things to make a divine point. But we believe they did bizarre things to make a divine point based on being divine, inspired by the Spirit. This prophet says to Jeroboam, you see this brand new coat I have on? I'm filling in a few of the conversational details, but these are the facts. It's brand new. I'm going to tear it into many pieces. He takes his coat and he tears it into many pieces. And he says to Jeroboam, you take these ten pieces of my coat. Because this is a sign a sign to you that God is going to give you 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel and you're going to be their king and you're going to rule over them and you're going to do whatever you wish. Take them. They're yours. Jeroboam, of course, is probably stunned by this revelation, but he also hears another word from Ahijah. Ahijah says, because of my servant David... I won't do this during Solomon's day. It will be after his death. And furthermore, there's a section of Israel that will be preserved for David's kingdom. Now, we know later what happens. Israel is split in two, the north and the south. And the southern kingdom's called Judah, the northern Israel. And Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom, and it's retained by so-called the house of David. Jeroboam probably is a little puffed up by this ready to assume this prophetic role that he doesn't know when, unfortunately, Solomon hears about it. And Solomon says, this young man that I spotted and raised up is not going to take my throne, so he tries to kill him. 
well, when people try to kill you, you do something about it. So Jeroboam, like the rest of us, flees. He runs away and he's in exile in Egypt. While in exile in Egypt, he hears that Solomon is now dead. And Rehoboam, his son, Solomon's son, is assuming the throne. Jeroboam comes back by a call of the people. And he approaches with the people, particularly the people approach Rehoboam, and they say to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, King Rehoboam, give us your word, will you? We're worried. Give us your word that you won't be so harsh to us, heavy-handed, as your father Solomon was. Rehoboam looks at them and says, interesting request, give me three days to think about it. The people leave, and he consults with his advisors. You know the story just read. The older advisors tell him, I'll tell you what, if you respond to them this way, if you say to them, in effect, I'll be your servant, they'll serve you. If you're a servant king, you will have what you need, you'll have what you want. That's the approach. The younger men say, are you kidding me? They're trying to sniff out weakness in you. They're waiting to say if you will be as tough as your father. So you tell them this. You tell them my father's waist is not even as big as my little finger. He might have scourged you with whips, but I'm going to scourge you with scorpions. Everything concerning my father was light compared to the way I'm going to rule. Of course, we know it's a bad piece of advice. We know it's a bad piece of advice, but we all know, also know something else. It was a piece of advice that Rehoboam took because God ordained it. God had decided that Rehoboam would act foolishly and take the foolish advice so that the kingdom would be split in half and the ten tribes would go with Jeroboam and the rest with Rehoboam. That's exactly what happened. The word of the Lord is fulfilled. Jeroboam comes in, the tribes revolt against Rehoboam, and then Jeroboam does an interesting thing. He says to himself, I'm king over these northern tribes, but you know what? They could defect. They could leave me. I've got to have their loyalty, and I know one way to remove from their reality a possible division of heart. I can remove Jerusalem from them. Because they're going to be inclined as people following Yahweh to go down to Jerusalem, which is in the south, and to worship God. And so, as a matter of fact, I'll tell them, you don't need to do that. I've got the resources. I'll build you high places all over the northern part of Israel. And you can worship your gods there. You can worship multiple gods. Do you see the pattern being played out? Oh, by the way, when Ahijah told Jeroboam that he was going to receive the kingdom from Solomon, you know what he told him? He said, the reason you're going to receive the kingdom from Solomon is because Solomon led the people astray to worship false gods. So Jeroboam says, wow, what a great idea. I'll lead them away to worship false gods, and then they won't go to Jerusalem, and they'll be mine forever. Big mistake. Really big mistake. On one occasion, Jeroboam is standing beside an altar that he directed for the high priests of various gods to worship with the people. 
And as he stands there, a mysterious figure appears, no name given, just a man of God. The man of God appears, and he says concerning the altar, he speaks to the altar, as it were, in order to speak to Jeroboam. He says to the altar, O altar, O altar, a day is coming for you, and it's going to look like this. On you, O altar, the bones of prophets, priests, of various gods are going to be burned and sacrificed. And it's going to be done because someone called Josiah, a person from the tribe of the same tribe as David, an ancestor, if you will, of my favorite king, is going to declare that to be done. And furthermore, altar, you're going to split in half and ash is going to pour out of you. As he spoke to the altar, Jeroboam, full of power and all kinds of pride, says to his henchmen, get that man. Strike him. And when he reaches out his hand to point to the man of God, the king's hand and arm withers to a stump. He screams out in terror, and he says to the man of God, please restore my hand. Bring me back to full health. And the man of God says, okay, I will. And he reaches forward, and by God's grace, he heals the man. Jeroboam the king is delighted that he's now healed and he doesn't face the wrath of God, so he thinks, and he says to the prophet, that man of God, I want you to come to my house. I want to thank you for what you've done. You know, after all, I'm the king. I got everything. Come, let's have a feast. Eat at my table. And the man of God says to him, you could give me half your kingdom, not just your table, half your kingdom, and I wouldn't come to your house. Why? Because God told me not to eat, or to drink until I'd returned home by an entirely different route. That man of God leaves Jeroboam, returns to his home by a different route, and on the way, the third story emerges. This man of God, this prophet number one, is on his way home and another prophet enters the story. Another prophet hears about the story from his sons of the first prophet. And he says to his sons, interesting story, which way did he go? They told him what they knew, and he says to his sons, saddle my donkey, boys. We're going to have a rendezvous. The second prophet strangest the first, encounters the first prophet along the road on the way back to his house, and he says to him, I hear what you've done. In other words, God bless you. You're a man of God. Come with me and eat with me. Be refreshed. The first prophet repeats what he said to Jeroboam the king. He says, I can't do that because God told me to go a different route and not eat or drink until I got home. I'm not going to your house to eat. And the second prophet says to him, oh, yes, but you see, I'm a prophet like you. I get a word from the Lord too. And God told me that you could come to my house and eat. 
know what's fascinating? The text says the prophet was lying. Prophet number one goes to prophet number two's house. And when they sit down to dine, prophet number two prophesies against prophet number one. Are you staying with me here? It's a complicated story. He says to the prophet that came into his house that sat down at his table to eat, you really blew it, buddy. God told you to go straight home not to eat or to drink, and because you ate at my house, you will never be buried in the tombs of your fathers. In other words, your untimely demise is right around the corner. You will suffer the judgment of God. It's the ultimate insult not to be buried with your fathers in that culture, right? You're going to die alone. He didn't say how. He just said, you're not going to where you think you're going because you disobeyed God. This is a strange story. But it gets stranger. Prophet number one leaves the house of prophet number two. And he starts out towards home. And shortly after he leaves, a lion comes out of the woods and attacks the first prophet and kills him. But you know what's even stranger? The lion kills the prophet, and then he stands there next to the prophet's body without doing another thing. And the donkey that the prophet rode stands on the other side of the prophet's body, both of them gazing at the man of God. Now get this, this is quite a scene, and the townspeople see it, and word gets out, are you serious? On highway number three down there, there's a prophet, and there's a lion standing over him who's killed him, and there's a donkey standing right next to the lion. Donkeys don't stand next to lions. Lions eat people when they kill them. The word gets back to prophet number two, the one who lied and invited prophet number one into his house. Prophet number two says to his sons, boys, saddle up my donkey again. I need to go out and find him. He goes to the scene of the crime, so to speak, and he sees just as they told him, the donkey standing on one side, the lion standing on the other, the prophet laying on the ground dead. He picks up the prophet, puts him on his own donkey, and takes him back to his own home. You get the strangeness of that part of the story too, right? The donkey's still standing there. The lion's still standing there. And they watch him pick up prophet number one. He takes him back to his home. And he says to his sons, we're going to bury this prophet, this man of God, in my tomb. And when I die, boys... I want you to bury me right next to this man of God. And then he invites his sons to mourn with him over the death of the prophet. See, I told you it would be the strangest story we'd encountered yet. When you think of that description that goes all the way back to Solomon and up to this strange prophet, what, what do you see? What are the lessons for us? Well, first, 
especially for the children, okay, because it seems like every time I tell one of these stories, it's about the time the kids come to church in the summer, right? And we're talking about bears and lions killing people. It's one of my R-rated sermons, so I'm sorry. But it's, it's what was there. And every once in a while, I hear from parents about how I ought to be a little bit more cautious and careful, and I'm sorry in advance. But I do want to say this, especially on behalf of the kids. See, the point of this story is not that if you don't follow God tomorrow, you're going to get eaten by a lion, okay? That's not what the point of the story is at all, okay? So forget that for a minute. This is a really unusual story with a really big purpose. So what do we learn from it? Well, the first thing we learn is this. God uses the foolishness and wickedness of humanity to advance his own purposes, right? We could look at Rehoboam and say he was just an idiot. No, he wasn't just an idiot. He was an idiot, but he was God's idiot. <laughs> are, you, are you relating to that or something? <laughs> He was God's idiot because he was a tool in the hands of God. He didn't just make this foolish decision on his own. He made the foolish decision as the result of God's prophecy concerning the ruin of Israel. Because God was going to do what God was going to do. So God uses human sinfulness, wickedness, evil, to advance his own causes. Second thing. It's a reminder that God will do what God is going to do. And nothing will stop it. If God has decided to judge Israel, God will judge Israel. If God has decided to judge us, God will judge us. God is absolutely sovereign and his plans will not be thwarted. There's a third really simple lesson that I want to call to your attention. Um, it could be summarized this way. Don't be stupid. Follow God and stay out of trouble. I know that's reductionistic, but it's exactly what all the judges are about. It's what the word of God was to every king. God said, don't be stupid. Don't run after other gods. Follow me and stay out of trouble. Now, it doesn't mean that you will have no trouble. It just means that you will not live under the heavy hand of the punishment of God. And if you do not follow God, you will be punished. I will not even come close to venturing to say what the punishment of God will be upon you, upon us, for not following him. But God punishes 
That's what God does because he's sovereign. And God blesses. That's what God does because he's sovereign. Because God is in control of everything. And we need to remind ourselves that God has made it very simple. Follow me and stay out of trouble. So what does all this tell us about ourselves? Well, there's a certain number of things that have already been said, but there's something else I want to emphasize that I know, I know, is going to get me in trouble, but that's okay. Just because we see this story and understand exactly how God did it does not mean that we understand God's story. We know what God's commands are, but we do not know how God is going to accomplish his will. We know what God's commands are. We know righteousness from wickedness. We know we're supposed to align ourselves with righteousness and not align ourselves with wickedness, but we do not know how God is going to use humanity and history and nations and every force in nature to accomplish his will. So let's not get so foolish as to be arrogant and to think that we understand thoroughly what God's doing in the world. You know, there's a lot of chaos going on in the world. And a lot of times, no, most of the time, we think we're on the right side. And maybe we are. But God has his purposes, and God's going to accomplish his will. And sometimes the accomplishment of his will is going to be done with the hands and the actions of the wicked. And sometimes in the process, the righteous will suffer. No, I don't know what God is about in this world. But I do know this. The scripture tells us that the heart of the king is in the hands of God. And he directs it like a water course. Let me expand that. The activity of every stupid sinner and dictator is in the hands of God and he directs it like a water course. And I cannot always tell the direction of God. Why? Because his ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts higher than my thoughts. I don't know what God is doing with all the chaos in the world. But my friends, I'm as confident as I am that I'm looking at you that God is taking every circumstance in our world and using it to accomplish his ultimate purposes. So what do we do? We simply follow God. We pray that his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We do not speculate concerning whether or not this action is that or this one the other. What we do is follow God. 
We pursue righteousness. We seek his kingdom first and foremost. And we let God be God. Now, just one final word of application that's, I hope, so much more encouraging than that because that seems a little dark, right? Here's the final word of encouragement. Comes from Romans 8, 28. Some of you know it by heart. Paul says that he's confident that in all things, in everything, in every circumstance, God is working out his purposes in us. Those of us who are following him, let me read it. And we know, says Paul, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. So let's leave the chaos of the world for a minute, shall we? Let's allow you for just a moment to focus on your life. I don't know what the focus is in your mind right now. It might be the foolishness of your own heart and how stupid you've been. You know, God can and will use your foolish, stupid heart to accomplish his purposes. If you turn to him, maybe you're thinking to yourself, I have this friend, this family member, that my heart aches for because they're not following God. I wish I could just shake them and bring them back. I wish they would hear the truth. You know, God could be letting them go so that the release is a return route to his grace. I don't know what God's doing, but I know he's good. I can't see all God's purposes, but I know this, that as a person who's called by God, he loves me. He loves me more than anyone could love me. And he proved it in Jesus Christ. And he has my best purposes in mind. And whatever the circumstances, he can work out and accomplish his will through me and in me. That's incredibly good news. Because I've messed it up so many times, I don't know how he can unravel it. My world seems so chaotic sometimes, I don't know how he can find his way into it. But by faith, I know it's true. And I will rest on that assurance, and I will follow God. Please, do that with me.
It's the way to life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these uh, remarkably unusual stories. We can't even say we completely understand them, but in the midst of them, your truth is revealed. We trust, Lord, um, that you will guide us to your truth and not let us go astray um, using your word unwisely. I pray, Lord, in particular, you will guard these people against the error of my preaching because I'm not fallible. I pray that you will guard them against the error of their own interpretation because they aren't either. We know you will, Lord, because that is grace. So if our hearts are inclined towards you, Lord, you will take us and shape us through circumstances and in ways that we couldn't imagine to be an instrument of your grace and peace. So we pray, Lord, uh, today, you will encourage our hearts to know that you really are at work. No matter what our circumstances, no, what our, no matter what our world looks like, you are orchestrating the events and the affairs of humanity to your greater purpose, and we have the incredible opportunity of being part of your greater purpose. And in coming alongside and entering into your purpose, we find hope, salvation, and eternal life. We thank you, Lord, for your story and for allowing us to make it our story. We pray you'll give us the faith to follow you. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.